and, and it's God using someone else in me. And the, and again, that principle, that principle is brought out of First Peter five, five and six. You know, you you uh, younger submit yourself to the elder. And can God use the younger for the eldest? Well, I'm going to tell you something right now. Boy, has he ever in my case here. Boy, has he ever. Now, not so much to reveal them where they're at. Although he'll do that in loving discernment, but to, to deal with me. To deal with myself. And I never saw it that way. Uh, but again, that's, that. that's, that's the value. You know, that, that's the valley. And that's the transition of Romans 1, verse 17. Faith, you know, go, we go from what? Faith, that's absolute dependence and a proper experience, mountaintop, to, and that's the transition period, to another mountaintop experience. And that's what God was teaching. He was teaching Israel even this. And that was Isaiah, the 45th chapter. It's just very interesting. Uh, with, the, with the, you know, different things that God gave me this morning, early this morning, and, and uh, just uh, teaching me through the scriptures and counseling me. Uh, one of them was Isaiah 45, the 45th chapter. And it's very interesting, too, how God will use, I mean, he will use, he'll use everything. That's why... In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15, how many things are for our sake? In Christ, but how many are? All things, that's what it says. All things are for our sakes. That the abundant grace, it says, might be down. That means go right back to the glory of God. And that's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 18, all things are what? Of God. For the believer in Christ, right? Everything that happens to us is of God. We may attribute the bad things, and we're going to see this. Oh boy, we'll see it this morning. Even even the bad things that we attribute to people and make a fault, God can use them for our good. There's no question about it. Now, I only mean that, and I believe the scriptures only mean that in the sense that you know all the all the evil that Joseph's brothers did to him. Did God? They, they may have meant it for evil in Genesis 50, verse 20, but did God mean it for good? Was it for Joseph's good, the evil that his brothers did towards him? Now, there's no question, was it evil? Yes, but did God use that evil to teach Joseph in a prison to prepare him to reign on a mountaintop experience, but not only for himself, but for even those brothers that did the evil to him and to restore and save and feed two nations, Egypt and Israel, where there was a famine. And of course, a famine there, when we understand a famine in Amos 8, verse 11, there are many, there's going to come a point in time where many will go, seek to and fro, go all over the place and seek for the word and won't find it. They're going to be hungry, you know, for the word, but, but they won't find it. But in the sense that, and this will tie into how I shared, I shared with Tony, and it was about a precious man that we know and love very deeply. We, we know and love this man, and he, as, as 
believing that he is a leader over others in specific area in the Boston area. During during a time after soul winning, they met at a certain place, and these precious men were sitting there like like Jetty Al and, and Tim Tony and I did a couple of weeks ago, and were sitting there. And then this man made this statement. He said, he made this statement that God created evil. How, how am I to understand that? That did God create evil? So what is that supposed to mean? And how should we understand that? Well, did God ever create evil? No. But I answered it to, I answered it like this, just in simplicity, because Tony called me after he was telling me about it. He was telling me about it, and, and, and the first thing I said was, well, let's just be honest. Let's look at Isaiah, the 14th chapter of those verses in like 9 to 17, and then in Ezekiel, the 28th chapter, uh, we can look at those first 20 verses in Ezekiel, the 28th chapter, and we can see this. It's referring, it, it uses a, a king of, of, of Tyrus. But also, he, it goes right into the to Satan and what happened in eternity. See, God did not create Satan. He created Lucifer. But he created him with a free will. And what happens when that will is not submitted to its creator? Whoa, boy. Then there's iniquity. And that's making a provision for self to reign without God. It's to exclude him. And you have to exclude him if you're going to reign apart from him and so that brings us to an understanding in isaiah 45 and this is where we can see how who and, and the things that god will even use to keep us humble and of course that goes into why we need to learn patience and that's those two words and uh, those two words that we shared about hupomone and macrophobia there was that message that we had about uh, that God gave us about hupomone and, and macrothumia and how God uses those things, circumstances, situations, and even negative evil people to humble us, to bring us to a place of patient receiving grace and trusting God. And of course we know uh, based upon James 4 verse 6 and 1 Peter 5 verse 6, we can't make a single adjustment apart from the grace of God, and yet he must humble us before he gives it to us, because we won't receive it. And there's the difference where we don't, we can't make a single, we will live just like the world, just, we will live just like the world, under the evil that the world lives in, in the flesh of the Christian, that it's not that we're not of in Romans 8, verse 9. But we will, because we will live just like them, apart from that grace, that gives us the transition and adjustment period. And that's that, Romans 1.17, faith to faith. That's the mountaintop experiences and the valley and so forth. But when we get to Isaiah, the 45th chapter, look what God does. Look at what he does. In verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now, was Cyrus, was he a heathen king? He was, but he born again. He wasn't, but did God use him for his purpose yes. for those that he loved, Israel? Yep. Did he? And he did. And he called him my anointed in the sense that it was God himself using him, even apart from Cyrus' own desires. 
And of course, Cyrus had that in mind because he, he felt like he was going to get something himself by doing this when God was using him totally in his ignorance. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have hold. Notice, I strengthen him. He may not know it, he may not be aware of it, but I am telling you, I'm still doing it. I'm still going to do it. To subdue nations before him, and I will lose the loins of king to open before him the two lead gates, and the gates will not be shut. Makes it very interesting to see what God is doing in the preponderance of the scriptures, because when I look at that, when I look at that, even in Isaiah 45, in verse 2, where it says, And I will break in pieces the gates of brass. Brass in the Bible, if you look at it, in Revelation 1 and verse 14, brass speaks of condemnation past, because his feet, his feet, where he walked where no man could walk, our precious Savior, dealt with condemnation for us in Romans 8, verse 1. Brass. I will cut in what? The gates of brass. When I see gates, it brings me back to Matthew 16, verse 18, when Peter, when God was answering Peter, and he said to him, Peter, you didn't get those things from God. You got them from no flesh. My father gave them to you. And I want to tell you this. I will build my church. I will build my church upon this massive ledge, myself, this rock. And you, Peter, are a little stone that's going to be placed on that. And the gates of hell, all the powers of hell will not prevail against you. What a promise. What a promise. All the accusation and, uh, accusations and lies of condemnation and guilt that the enemy likes to attach to you, and he'll use you blaming others so you don't experience it. But the fact of the matter is that I will cut in asunder, in sunder, in, like nothing. The gates of hell, the pieces, break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in asunder the, the, the bars of iron. Bars of iron. And I will give you. Notice that? I will give you. That's, that's the voice of grace. Because who deserves it? Who deserves a, an ounce of grace? I will give you the treasures of darkness. I remember, oh, Lord, when was this? It was 1978. This was 1978. And all hell was breaking around me. All hell. I'd broken my, my knee and other things. I was in a cast from my hip down to my ankle. All hell was breaking loose around me. And this verse, I remember, I, I came out of uh, Fokine and Lennox, which was, a, which was a restaurant there. I came out and I was just done. I just think I just thought things were over for me. And then, and then Pastor Stevens appeared to me and he said, you listen to me. You listen to me. I'm going to give you a verse. He said, you listen to me. And this is the verse that he gave me. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, which call you by your name. Wow. I know you. 
in my son. And not just the God of Israel, but in this sense, he's, a, he's our God in the most intimate way that Israel could never experience. And he gave me that. And boy, has God brought that verse. Constant uh, uh, illumination of the revelation that never changed in my life. He said, I will give you the treasures of darkness. And the way that God gave that to me and spoke it to me was this. And this is Matthew, the 10th chapter. Matthew, the 10th, 10th chapter. Verse 26. Fear not them, therefore. God gives you a promise. He's spoken something to you. He took that word that was a revelation, but he made it a rhema, a personal intimate expression and manifestation of his grace and love towards you. You fear them not. Therefore, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hid that will not be known. This is what he told me in 1027. What I tell you with darkness, what I told you with darkness, the reality of what I worked out in you, and will continue to do so, what I told you with darkness, now you're going to speak in the light. And what you hear in your ear, that you're going to preach from the housetop. You're going to be able to preach and tell people, Christians. You're going to tell them, multitudes. You're going to be able to tell them. And then in uh, Micah 7, verse 8, Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. He's going to teach me things in darkness that no other place could teach me. You know, there's certain roses the most beautiful roses with the scent, the most beautiful roses only come out for a few hours in the darkness of the night. And those that know them go there to get them. You know, he creates a diamond. Where do diamonds come from? They're hidden in the, in the dark, deep, hidden secret places of the earth. And what makes a diamond? He's forming us and shaping us for an eternal exchange of fellowship. Revelations 2, verse 17, that white stone, that's a treasure. And he's forming in us, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that treasure. That treasure. And what creates that diamond? The things that we don't want anything to do with, the things that we want to escape the most from the place where God can only do in that place what he's designed to do for us, and that's heat and pressure. Those are the things we just try to escape, and the enemy will make give us every kind of mechanism to escape it. Because the, because the enemy, in terms of our experience in John 10, 10a, comes to he comes to, to kill to, to what? What does he do? John 10, 10a. What does he do? Steal, kill, and destroy. Steal. The proper experience killed and destroyed the experience. Can't touch the position, but we'll go after that. So when it says this, and we're going to get back to what evil means here, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. Those are the secret places where nobody else knew the depth of the pain, my failure, and all these things that I've experienced, yet they'll be brought out in the light of eternity in Revelations 2, verse 17. There'll be an intimate fellowship with Christ that will never replace anything other than what we've gone through. And those are the things we want to escape. Yet there's where he does the depth of what he's doing in us. 
the secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, which call you by your name. And he calls his sheep by name in John 10, 3 and 4. A stranger's voice they don't, they do not hear. A stranger's voice, guilt, condemnation, accusation, all these things. They're not going to hear it. Which call you by your name, your new name. And that's the new name that he's given in Revelations 2, verse 17. You know, he gave a new name to Peter, didn't he? He gives us new names in Christ, new images, new names that reflect who we are in our image. Verse 4 of Isaiah 45, For, for Jacob my servant's sake, and the heirs of mine elect, I have called you by your name. I have surnamed you. I looked up that name, surname. Look it up. It's a new name. It's a new second name. He's done away with the first, the old man. He surnamed us and given us a new name that is characteristic of the family that we are now in. Where Jesus said in Hebrews 2 verse 11, I am not ashamed to call them my family, my brethren. Because they that are, he that sanctifies in Hebrews 2.12, they that sanctifies and then who are sanctified are all of one. Oh boy, if we only understood how we're one family. We would never blame each other for another thing ever. We would never again compare one one member to another, one gift to another. We would that would do away with it completely. I have surnamed you, though you have known me. Oh boy. We have yet to know how much he loves us. The enemy may cause the failure, I may choose it and be, be accountable for it. For it. But even that failure, the enemy wants to attach to me. God says, you know what, I'll use that to show you, to bring you to the end, so that you can know me and my love for you that you will never surpass. Mm-hmm. In Ephesians 3, and verse 19. And he's going to tell us in 45, verse 5 of Isaiah, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded you, though you even haven't known me. That's his anticipative love, his prevenient grace. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is none else. Why would you go anywhere else? Why would you do anything else? I form the light. Now listen to this verse. And if we never understood these things, we would say yes, like certain others wrote in their institutions that God, that evil was a part of God's perfect will. (laughs) Which it absolutely is not. But if I didn't have proper teaching with the preponderance of the scriptures and understand the languages, I would attribute evil to God. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, if I didn't understand that, I would say, see, but yeah, but doesn't it say in Psalm 97, verse 10, all you that love God hate evil? Doesn't it say in James 1, 13, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither he tempts any man. Why does it say in Romans 3, 8, should I do, should I do evil the good may about? Attributing evil to God. Is there any evil in God? No, but the evil here is what man created and his justice has to punish if it's not Christ. 
The evil is what? The evil that they brought on themselves, but yet when God sees it and doesn't see his son and what he's accomplished, what his, his love is just love. You can't separate love from justice, so what must he do? He must punish to be a loving, righteous, holy, pure God. That's all this is saying. And, and, that, and the precious man said that. That God, yes, God created evil. Because he probably read, boy, and I, I hate to use certain names about certain things, but, but that's what John Calvin wrote in his institutions. That, that even the evil that is functioning right now, the evil, any evil, God was a part of this nature. Before any angel was created, before man was created. That, does that make any scriptural sense whatsoever? It doesn't. But yet, you know how many believe that? And out of that, think of how, where the evil, if you attribute evil to God, do you know what that means? Hey, listen, it, it's not your will at all. And your will has nothing to do with it. God has chose certain ones to go to hell and certain ones to go to heaven apart from their will whatsoever. It makes no sense. Now that's it. And that's what, and even in his institutions, Calvin says that, but yet he can't even tell you why he believes it, but he still says he believes it. Does it make any sense? No. It makes no sense. And if there's no sense involved, it's called nonsense. And if it's nonsense, there's no good. It's evil. Now, Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man. What? That he should lie. Let me ask you a question. God is not a man that he should lie. Now, is a lie evil? Yes. God is not a man that he should lie. Nor the son of man that he should ever change his mind. Has he not said, will he not do it? Has he not spoken, will he not bring it to pass? Will he not? Titus 1, 2, Hebrews 6, 18. It is impossible for God to lie. Are lies evil? Yes. Is sin evil? Yes. Listen, Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So, God says that, right? Does that make any sense? Nope. Doesn't make any sense at all. I'm excited now. I'm not... This is not a blank, even towards this precious man that said that in, in ignorance. And I believe he's, he loves the Lord God probably in a lot of other ways better than myself. And uh, not to compare, but just, just, just to be real about Amen. it. Amen. But there's ignorance. But I don't believe it. I don't believe in any way that, that he means it against God. He's just ignorance. Yeah. You know, and that's what happens when... We refuse to allow God to use others to teach us Man. in pride. That's all. It's just wrong. Yeah. We are all a joint that supplies. Every single one of us, we are a joint that supplies. When we're taught properly. So Ephesians 4, 16 goes back to 4, 15. You speak the truth in love. And then you're not tossed to and fro in 14 by every wind of doctrine because you have the light in 5.13 of the scriptures. For whatsoever does, 
what does the light do? It reproves and through their needs just discovers. That's all it means. And that's what God has uh, for us. And so with all of these things, these are, this is everything that he's doing in us. And, you know, this is where we learn the, uh, we learn these things, we receive these things on the mountaintop, but in the valley is where they're worked in. You know why? Because you and I are not there for ourselves, just for ourselves. Because again, in Joel 3, verse 14, there are multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. The Lord is near. Where? He's in me. Not just for me, but for others. In Joel 3, verse 14. That will do away with all our personal plans. That's right. We, we will. Now, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. What does that mean? Well, it takes God to know God. Only God can tell you and I who he is. That's right. And when we know who he is and we receive it, now I can know who I am in him. Because God would never want my attention, first and foremost, to glorify himself, but, but right with it, to bless me with it. That's right. Just would. So, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. What's that, what's that speaking of? And speaking of this, listen, God has self-knowledge. Well, of course he does. Who knows himself better than him? Do I think I know him apart from Christ, apart from grace and truth and humility? Do I? No. He has self-knowledge. God has self-knowledge. He knows himself. So when it says in Isaiah 46, verse 10, he declares the end from the beginning. And when he says in Acts 15, verse 18, known unto God are all his, all his works. Notice that they're his works from the beginning, which were created in Christ in Ephesians 2.10. And Christ came to manifest it. Part of his self-knowledge is his foreknowledge. He foreknows everything based upon who he is. And that's the only way I can determine good and evil. Yeah, well, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of, of, of good and evil, what happens? What happens? Well, just when he, he had, remember he made that command in uh, Genesis 2 and verse 17? He convinced the woman through his subtlety in Genesis 3, 1 to 6, to eat of that tree. Then her eyes were open. You know, he can, he, what he did say, and the enemy always makes us partial truth. Is partial truth can be just as dangerous as no truth. It can be even more dangerous. Because a partial truth is a truth. Is it? No. Well, didn't he convince Adam and Eve and through Eve and, you know, through hubby submitting to wifey? <laughs> or, you know, a little bit mixed up. Didn't he convince her that she could know good and evil? He did. The only thing he didn't tell her was, you, the only way you're going to know it is a fallen, ruined state. Then you're going to determine God good through evil. Say, isn't that interesting? Can't, no, can't do it. Can we separate? Do we even think we can separate good from evil apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit, taking the things of Christ in John 16, 13 to 14 and showing them unto us? Do we even think for a second we can do that? No, because the minute, the second we do, it's just my flesh 
interpreting the scriptures. That's all it is. That's it. That's all it is. And so, Lord, has God given me some counsel uh, about so many, so many, many different things. So again, uh, as we just wrap it up this morning, uh, in, Gen- uh, in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. The thoughts of what? Peace. Does God think towards you and I outside of Christ? Who is that peace? In Ephesians 2, verse 14. <laughs> they are peace. My, I know the thoughts that I think to you, towards you. They are thoughts of peace and not what? Evil. 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 Can I bring it about on myself? Yeah. Now, in our case, thank God he's not punishing us. Thank God, but he's chastising us. But in terms of the unsaved world, yes. No wonder multitudes. And still, God is faithful, but no wonder. No wonder when he can convince God, unsaved people, God forbid, saved ones, that God is, is evil in God. Well, who would want anything to do with that, with him? Thank God, though, we, we, Jesus said, you can know the truth in John 8, verse 32, and, you, and the truth will set you free. Yeah. But you know, there's no truth apart from grace. There's no grace apart from humility. There's no plan that God has other than to do one single thing, to humble us, and he will use the failures of others. Yes, and does he let them get away with that? No, he'll lovingly deal with them. No question about it. And we can trust him in love, not reaction, but in love, a response of grace through love, that he will deal with them. No question about it. Because who can who can deal better with us than God? You know, two things will find this out. Hopefully it's grace. Grace, a proper image. Because if not, then Numbers 32, verse 23 says, your sin will find you out. That's what, there's the valley right there. Your sin is going to find you out. If it's not grace, what is it? It's sin. If it's not grace or goodness, what is it? It's sin. And sin is evil. And we attribute neither to God. That's why when he even said it in Matthew, the 19th chapter, listen, look at what it says. And then we'll go to, to Luke 18. But Matthew 19, look at what it says. Matthew 19. In verse 16, it says, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good things will I do? Oh, my God. Attributing human good to God and his perfect humanity, Jesus Christ. (laughs) What good thing will I do that I may inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, Why do you call me good? Now, was God was Jesus Christ good? He was nothing but good. But what he was saying to him is this. You don't even realize in your evil state, you're determining what good is based upon yourself. And you're lowering me in your evaluation. Dear Lord. That's the flesh in us, by the way, that we're not of in Romans 8. Why call you me good? There is none good but one. That is God. Now remember, 
When Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are what? One. One. So that's how we understand these verses. That is God. But if you will, but if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. Right? You don't call anyone good. Where is good? It's only in God. Is there any evil in their goodness? No. And so finally again in Luke 18. And I, I can only trust God to tie all these things together. And I'll do that. And thank you. I'm thankful that we have that privilege to do it together. We do it alone too, but we have a privilege to do it together through the light of the scriptures and to oneness. It's very interesting. I, it's very interesting. And I'm going to close with back with Isaiah 45. But it says this. And... Luke 18, verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what will I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said unto them, Why do you call me good? None is good except one, that is God. See it? So back finally here. This is what makes it so necessary. The enemy will do everything he can in the blame game and in the fault finding to keep us from gathering together in the place where God has called us. This doesn't mean we're not going to fail and make mistakes. It doesn't mean that. It means that in the valley that is going to happen. But right now, the valley is time, folks. That's where we're in. We have eternal life in us right now. We can, we can know the Father through Christ, who is that eternal life. In 1 John 5, 11, in John 17, verses 2 and 3, we can see that clearly. But look what it says as we continue and close in Isaiah. Isaiah 45, 7, again, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Do we have a much clearer understanding of these things? Oh, I do too, with you. I just want to make that clear. I do, with you. And then it goes on about striving. Woe unto him that strives with his maker. In other words, you know, I'll blame somebody. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Will the clay say to him that fastened it? What are you doing or what are you making? Or your work, he that has no hands. Woe unto him that says unto his father, well, you know, what did you do? What you what what did you do? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? So you can you can see it and follow it all the way through together. But look at verse 20. Let's get the picture of Hebrews 10, verse 25 for us. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. But exhort one another and do it much more as you see the day approaching. Much more. Much more. Look what it says in verse verse 20 of Isaiah 45. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near. Look at what it says. Together. Can we do that? Can we draw near and, and come to Jesus and yet do it together? Well, I'm going to tell you, we can, but that's not going to operate in the valley without forgiveness. Because that's what we're going to learn about love. We're going to learn about God's nature through the light of the scriptures. That's what it says. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together. Why? Why can we draw near together? Why should we and why can't we forgive each other? Because God's removed all distance. Not only between the individual and God, but between those in the local assembly. Period. And you can run, you can hide, you can change, and go ahead. 
God's going to do what only he can do in all of us. Draw near together. You that have escaped of the nations, the world system, they have no knowledge that set up wood of their graven image. The world's going to tell you what, you're, what you should identify and make your image. Can you read 1 John 5, 20 and 21, a true proper image in 1 John 5, 20, and then our idols come in to blur the vision in 21 of 1 John. They have no knowledge that set up wood of their graven image and pray unto God that cannot save. Tell them, tell you and bring them near. Don't use the enemy to, to through faults and lack of forgiveness. Don't use the enemy to allow to use you to keep others from coming because you don't. I'm telling you, it's not good for any of us. It's evil. It's just this. It's just this. Just make it clear. God's making it clear. And yea, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? Hey, there is no God else beside me. A just God. Just is justice. God is love. You can't separate them. Read it right there. And because of that, I save you. There is none besides me. Look unto me. Stop, Ed. Anybody, Ed, I don't care. Ed, stop blaming others. And, and using that as an excuse to not be where God's called you. And I, that's up to God, and I, I only know that. Stop it. Look unto me, Hebrews 12, 2. Look away from all that would distract. What would be a distraction? Lack of forgiveness, comparing, pride, insecurity. Look away from all that would distract unto Jesus. He's the author. He's the author and finisher of your faith. He's going to do it. He's going to make you and cause you to depend upon him. Through only that grace that he'll give you, but first he must humble you so you can make that transition transition that little word two in Romans 117 to make that transition back to a now a mountaintop experience where you will see in Song of Solomon 4 verse 7 you're all fair there's no spot in you no blemish none whatsoever and now in Song of Solomon 4 you can look from the top not from the bottom up looking from the bottom up is the blame game making everyone else responsible and accountable but not you <laughs> or me, I should say. No. Let them take counsel together. See, there is no God beside me. Look unto me, in Isaiah 45, 22, and be delivered. Okay? All the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself. The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness. Is there any evil in righteousness? And will not return. Won't change my mind. That unto me every knee will bow. That's Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 through Christ. Every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. Will swear. Surely... Will one say in the Lord, oh boy, I have righteousness. Oh boy. 
He's my righteousness in 1 Corinthians 1.30. And I have strength, grace. I have righteousness based upon grace. And he sends all kinds of portions in the valley in Psalm 68.28. Even to him will men come. And all that are increased against him will be what? A shame. You know, there's shame when I'm against another believer. When I blame another believer and use that to do something that just maybe I shouldn't do. Because maybe I think if I do something different, I'll get more when it, where I need the more right where God has placed me. Just want to make that crystal clear. My mind hasn't changed about that either, by the way. It just hasn't. But there's shame in that. And the Lord will all deceive, not only of Israel, but us way more, be justified, clear of all guilt and condemnation. Because why? Based on Romans 3, verse, verse uh, 25 and 26, and Romans 4, verse 25, we've been justified by his glory. And only grace glorifies him. That's it. Grace glorifies him. And thank God who we, that he's a God of grace towards us. In Jesus' name, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.